Okay, welcome back to another wonderful installment of Sefer Mishle. We have a treat for today, and the treat for today is we get to do some wonderfully beautiful psukim that are quite recognizable and well-known. Um, and, and the more I learn through Sefer Mishle, the more I uh, recognize these beautiful psukim that... that uh, that we know and are familiar with, but um, not everybody knows they're from Mishle, and uh, not everybody understands the depth of them. And even us, we don't understand everything, but let's see what we can get to. Okay, so we left off Parak Gimel, Pasuk Yud Gimel. So chapter 3, verse 13. We had started it briefly, but let's continue. Ashrei Adam Motzah Chachma. Praiseworthy is the man who has found Chachma, who has found wisdom. The Adam Yafik Tevuna. And a person who gives forth understanding. We've talked about already a number of times the idea of Chachma and Tevuna, the idea of what Chachma is, what Tevuna is. Uh, it just struck me today, I don't know how, how familiar everybody is with... Um, of the latest advancements in artificial intelligence. Um, you know, it was always a science fiction sort of thing, but um, it's becoming, you know, a lot more practical right now. Um, there's a uh, new program out on, online. I'm not sure if you know about it. It's called uh, Chat GPT. I told you about this, right? So it's it's... Shake away some secrets. Um, I was playing around with it um, yesterday. I'm just going to record this. Recording in progress. Um, my wife was writing her report cards. I'm saying, I've been hearing it. My wife was writing her report cards. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Um, you know, you get to say what you want to say about the kids, but you don't have to sit there figuring out if your grammar is perfect and is the syntax right and is the sentence structure right. You just put in what you want to say and it writes a, a comment for you, you know. And I'm sure there's going to be people that, that, that say that's cheating in some way, shape, or form. You know, in my mind, it's, it's, it's being efficient. You know, I mean, it's, you know you're, not, you're not... The computer is not writing what you think about the kid. The computer is just kind of... You know, making it grammatically correct and, and, and making it, uh, you know, organizing it in a way that's, that's legible and, you know, it takes up, I mean, it's not for my wife, it takes a long time to write those comments. And, and it's mostly like, you know, restructuring the sentences so that they make logical sense versus actually notations about the kids, you know, and it's like, you know, it doesn't, writing, structuring the sentence right doesn't enhance the, uh, the parent's understanding of their child which is the purpose of the... Uh, so I saw somebody... So they have this for, for all sorts of writing, and it's incredible what you do with it. They have it for computer programming now. You can literally write computer code for you. Um, they have it for images. You can use it for images. It can literally create an image for you, and I've played around with all this stuff, and it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable what it can do. Um, so somebody made a comment, which is a smart comment. He said that people have been saying that, you know, this, all this artificial intelligence is going to replace human beings and human creativity. And the guy said, no, it's human beings who adapt artificial intelligence will replace human beings who don't. 
<laughs> That's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, and, and let me, let me kind of... Struck thought struck me in the context of this puzzle here. What artificial intelligence is excellent at, and, and what we've been coming out until now, is the idea of chachma in a in a data sense. You talk about chachma versus tfuna. Um, information, straight information that follows rules. Um, they're very good at that, and, and even better than a lot of people uh, to that end. What it can't really do at all is bina, uh, the, the idea of, of uh, abstracting um, and abstracting to other things. And that's where human creativity is necessary. So, and like the word creativity implies, literally creating. Um, the Maharal talks a lot about this idea that there's, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this or not, there's something called yesh me'ayin, there's something called yesh mi'esh, and then there's something called koch alapoel. Yesh me'ayin is creating something from nothing, uh, which is only Hashem can do. Literally creates something from nothing, only Hashem can do that. Yesh yesh is to create something out of something. So what does that mean? If I take a piece of wood and I create a baseball bat, so I took something, I turned it into something else. The something that I created was readily recognizable in the first thing that I had. So it's, there's very little of a new creation here, right? It's yesh mi yesh. I, I transformed something, I altered something, I changed something, but I had a piece of wood and now I also have a piece of wood. It's just in a different form, maybe a little more functional, but it's very recognizable that this is a piece of wood. Animals can do that too. Animals create crude tools, they can, they can, they can um, and machines can do that, no question. Then there's something called koach alapol. Koach alapol means to take something um, which is uh, potential and, and, and actualize it, make it into something real. And that implies something which is beyond that which is recognizable. All the 39 malachas on Shabbos are all examples of koach alapol. Um, you know, let's take writing, for example, right? There's ink, there's paper, right? And then you write, right? The content of the writing is not at all contained in the ink and the paper, right? It's a completely different creation. Now, it's not something from nothing. The ink existed, the paper existed. But it's entirely creative in its application. Writing has really nothing to do with ink and paper. You know, it's not like taking a baseball bat and making a bat, you know, a piece of wood and making a baseball bat out of it. They're, they're, that's yesh me'ayans. The third time we have on Shabbos are all human creativity. Hashem gave human beings an ability to be creative, similar to Hashem, in this world. And that's largely in the area of tvunah, the area of the ability to abstract and to extrapolate concepts from one thing to something else. So, so just, you know, we, we talk about this, um, it just struck me as the idea of Chofim and Tfuna in this sense. Um, the Villagon points out in this passage, he says, Asher are the Matzah um, somebody found Chachma. So the Villagon comments, he says, true Chachma is found, meaning external to oneself. 
if a person finds Chachma within themselves, that's not true Chachma. That means a person's, you know, relying on their own brilliance. That's a theme we've seen many times that, you know, what the world might say, this person's smart because he's a high IQ. That's not what we're calling Chachma. Chachma is something that you find outside of yourself uh, by picking up from other people, from other sources. That's where true Chachma lies. Okay. Um, let's continue. Pasuk Yud Dal. Verse 14. We're talking again, talking about Chachma, the Torah. Kitov Sachra Mishar Kosef. Its business is better than the business of silver. And its produce is better than that of fine gold. As an aside, my, my, uh, my father, when he was younger, when he was 12 years old, he won a, he won a competition as the best piano player in the state of Ohio. For his age. I'm sure, Mrs. Rudnick, you know, you've seen my father at those concerts. Um, so my father is, you know, fairly talented at the piano. He, it's a musical family. Yeah, so he, you know, classical piano. He, he plays about as well as the best 12-year-old in the state of Ohio, which is, <coughs> you know, a lot better than I can. But, uh, you know, he's far from, far from, you know, professional, professional. But, you know, as far as a layman's concerned, he's pretty good. So, um... You know, so every year he would put on a concert to benefit the girls' high school in Atlanta. He would play a piece, you know, once a year. Uh, you know, a concerto, like, you know, Beethoven, Bach, something like that. Um, so anyway, so my grandfather, his father, uh, was also very musical. And Chazen, he's a Chazen. And he very much wanted my father, who had this piano talent, he wanted him to pursue music as a career. And my father definitely had the talent for it. Um, and then my father went to Yeshiva. So he was in Baltimore first, Yeshiva in Baltimore. And, and, you know, I think the deal that he made up with his father was, I'll go to Yeshiva, but I'll still practice the piano and, and stay in tune. Um, whether he did or not, you know, but my grandfather, at least officially, he was practicing. And then he decided to go to Yeshiva in Israel. In Israel. He went to um, Yeshiva Sanegev, which is at uh, Yeshiva Nitivot in the Tanya Nitivot in Israel. Now, Nitivot in Israel in the 1970s, I don't think there was a single piano in the town, you know. <laughs> so um, at that point, it became pretty clear that my father was not um, continuing with the piano, you know. I uh, couldn't fool my grandfather anymore. Not that I'm not sure he was fooled before, but at that point, it became pretty clear that um, yes, and you're practicing where exactly? You know, there, there, were, no, there were no pianos in the town. So uh, my grandfather once went to visit. Uh, Rishachar Meir was the yeshiva of the yeshiva Sanega. And he once went to meet him and they, uh, they met. And my grandfather asked him, he says, you know, Hashem gave him a talent to be able to play piano. And, uh, you know, Hashem gave him a talent. He's supposed to use it, you know, in service of Hashem. Like, uh, you know, what's, what's happening with his talent? That was the question that my grandfather asked me, Yisachar Meir. So, Yisachar uh, Meir <laughs> looked at my grandfather, he says, Mr. Goldberger, Torah is the best of music. <laughs> that was his answer. <laughs> so my grandfather says over the story, he says, I still haven't forgiven him. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, this is the line, Torah is the best of scherer, Torah is the best business. 
So this Pasuk says, Kitev Sachar Mishar Kesef, the business of Torah, Torah is the best of Sechar. The best, the best business a person can go into. Okay, um, what are these means? Let's, let's understand this a little, bit, a little bit more on a deeper level. So Rashi says something very nice over here. He says, when it comes to business, um, you have to give to get. So if I want to buy something, if I want to buy a, 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 uh, you know, a transaction, I, I buy some merchandise. So before the transaction, I have money. The other person has merchandise. After the transaction, I lose my money, he loses his merchandise. Now, we exchange, but he says, when it comes to Torah, if I teach somebody else Torah, he says, I don't lose my Torah when I give it to you, so you buy it, but I don't lose it. So he says, you know, and it works with, so the business of, of Torah is a much better business than any other business, because in any other business, you have to give to get. He says, when it comes to Sarah, Rashi says, this is the, the, the business of Torah, um, you don't have to give to get. You know, you give and you retain what it is that you had before. That's why the business of Torah is better than the other. Um, the uh, another shot in the end of the pasuk it says greater than any produce. So produce specifically, um, you talk about produce. Produce may be wonderful, you know, fruit, vegetables, grain, etc. Um, but everything has a shelf life, right? So it, it's going to expire. It's gonna. It's gonna you know, rot and expire at some point. Uh, whereas Torah is something which is not, uh, doesn't expire. You know, when you acquire Torah, it never expires. Um, so it's, it's a good product to, to invest in. You know, you invest in, uh, in produce, it'll expire at some point, invest in Torah, it's not going to expire. Another, another idea is, is that, and before I talk about this, is that any other investment you're going to invest in, the thing that you acquire is external to yourself, it's not an investment in yourself, it's, it's a possession that, that you have external to you. Whereas Torah, if you invest in it, 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 it's, uh, it builds you up internally, it becomes part of you. Okay. Kitov Sachra, Mishar Kosef, Mecharot Tfuasa. Okay. Next Pasuk, again, a beautiful Pasuk. Um, much has been said about this. Yikara Himi Pninim. It is more precious than pearls. And all of your desires will not equal it. Okay. So let's start again. Somebody told me today that these words, the same gematria as Torah. Um, it's, it's more valuable than pearls. And all of a person's desires will not uh, equal that of Torah. So again, the similar idea to the last Pasuk. Um, but like this, I want to point out something like this, that when it comes to value, there's two ways to value things. I think the one Gon says this, there's two ways to value things. Some things are valued based on the rarity. So they may, let's say a diamond, it's not valuable because it's necessary, right? You don't, a person doesn't need a diamond to live. It's not necessary to life, but it's, it's valuable because of its rarity. That's one way to value something. Other things are valuable because they're necessity. So even though they may not be rare, but it's a different sense of value. Uh, not, not monetary value, but they're of great importance. Now, I think the, um, the Chobos Halavos points this out. It's a great chesed of Hashem that the more necessary a commodity is in the world, the more in abundance it is. Uh, and he, he speaks out, he says, oxygen is the most necessary thing for life and it's free and available everywhere. Um, water is the second most, and that's the second most available, and then f- food, etc. 
and Hashem specifically in his, in his kindness set up the world where the things that are most necessary for life are also the most readily available. Um, so they may not be expensive in that sense, but when you're talking about worth and value, um, they're valuable because they're absolutely necessary. So it says the Vangon, the two halves of this puzzle are expressing these two ideas. The first half is saying it's more precious than pearls, meaning which is a rare commodity. So Torah is rare. It's rare in the world and therefore it's valuable in the sense that it's rare. And then the end of the Pasuk is saying it's, it's, it's uh, worth more than anything you can want as far as its necessity. That's the one that explains that it's something which is absolutely critical for life more so than anything else in this world um, and it's, it's worthwhile and valuable that way. Chavetz Chaim says another nice note over here about the idea that it's more precious than pearls. He says... When it comes to pearls, and presumably this applies to any other you know, precious gem, something like that, the relative value goes up exponentially relative to the size. If you have a diamond that's twice the size, you know, a two-carat diamond versus a one-carat diamond is not twice the value. It's a lot more than that, right? So you know, the, the, the bigger it gets, the, the exponential value is, is on a much higher curve. Right? I don't know the exact numbers, but a, a two-carat diamond is worth, I don't know, eight times more than a one-carat diamond, not two times more. Somebody once told me the value of the diamond is in its clarity. That's definitely part of it, and that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the factors, but size is still a factor. So as far as, even assuming everything's the same clarity, um, the size is a factor, but the, the relative value goes up. And it's the same with the pearls. The, the larger pearls are worth a lot more than smaller pearls, um, but it's, it's exponential. Once you get larger, says, says the Chavetz Chaim, the same thing is true with Torah. Um, the more Torah a person acquires, the more valuable it is to the person, but it's exponential. So you don't have to double your Torah intake, so to speak, to double the value that the Torah provides you. you know, even a small increase in, in the Torah that one has can provide an exponential increase in value within the person. It's a, it's a nice way to look at it. He says, and that's alluded to in this verse of, of more precious than pearls, that um, there's an exponential value the larger it is, the more you have. Okay. Um, the Gemara makes a drasha here on this passage. The Gemara says, means the innermost uh, innermost room, which is referring to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Mizamikdash, the Holy of Holies, that's the innermost room. And this Pasuk is saying that Torah is greater than the Kodesh HaKadoshim. This is the Gemara learns. And the Gemara says, this means that the Talmud Chacham is greater than the Kohen Gadol. Even, even the Kohen Gadol going into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Anyum Kippur, a Talmud Chacham is greater than that. This is very... Uh, reminiscent of, of the Rambam. The famous Rambam talks about there's three crowns in the Jewish people. There's the crown of Torah, there's the crown of, of Kahuna, of being a Kohen, the crown of Malchus, the crown of kingship. And he talks about all the, the wonderful uh, value and advantage, you know, advantages that come to having the crown of, of kingship and, and, and the privilege of Kahuna. And then he says the crown of Torah is greater than, than all of them. Um, it's, it, a fascinating idea that I, that I once heard, and this is relevant to me. I'm, I'm a Bukhar, um, and we have the day before Pesach is Tainus Bukhar, and we have fast day. Now, it's a very strange fast day. We don't fast. Right? You go to Shul, you hear a Siyam, and then when you hear a Siyam, you don't fast. 
So, Rishlam is on Arabach. So, the classic explanation of why there's a fast day in Arab Pesach is because um, since the firstborn were saved, spared in the plague of the firstborn, so therefore they, they uh, decided to fast. Um, Rishlam is on Arabach, I once saw, has a bunch of questions on this approach. I mean, there are very legitimate sources that say this, which is the standard approach. Rishlam is on Arabach, a very unique approach, and he, he has some questions on this approach. He says, first of all, when was the last time we fast because we were saved? We eat. We, we celebrate. Like, usually, you know, it's, it's when we're in trouble, we fast. And when we're, and when we're saved, we make a party. So this idea that we were saved, therefore we fast, like, what's, what's with that? He says, another thing which is interesting, he says that whenever a, a, a fast day falls out on Shabbos or Yantif, and we don't fast on Shabbos or Yantif, so we have to push it off. We always don't, we don't do it on Erev Shabbos. We always do it on Thursday, right? So he says like this. He says, when was the fast, of the, when were the firstborn saved? At night. The, the, the plague of the firstborn happened at night, which is the 15th of Nisan, yeah. which is the first day. Now, okay, I understand why you don't fast on the 15th of Nisan. Nisan is the first day of Yantif. But then why do we do it Erev Pesach? We should do it two days before Pesach. Right? The only time we fast on Erev Shabbos is if that's the actual day of the fast. But if it's a Nidcheh, we're anyways pushing it off so that we don't do it the day before. See, this is strange. Tanis B'chorim, according to the classic explanation, the, it was a fast that happened on the first day of Pesach. So that should be the date of the fast. Okay, you want to tell me you can't fast the first day of Pesach? Okay, so push it off two days before. Why are we doing it on Erev Pesach? This is the question he asks. Um, and then the third thing he points out is this, this again, this concept that um, it's a fast day, but we don't really fast and we have a seum and everything's good. I mean, that, that's, we don't find that anywhere else. It's a very strange thing. So he says, he says a beautiful idea. Uh, he, he has a whole different take on, on Tanis Bukharam. And I, he must have sources, but I, I don't remember where he, he's coming from. He says the following. He says that we know that originally the, the, the Avodah, the service in the Vesemikdash was supposed to be the firstborn had it. And then by the, the eagle, the golden calf, we sinned and, and they lost the privilege. And it was given to Levi, to, to the Kohanim and Levi. So he says like this, he says, the Kohanim, the, the, the firstborn, as a sign of mourning over losing that privilege, decided to establish one day a year as a day to mourn over losing the privilege of Kohanim. Mm. Now which day are they going to pick? Pick any day. So he says they picked the one day where the most action, so to speak, happened in the Beis Hamikdash. Because that was the day that it was most poignant, we lost the privilege. What was the one day in the calendar that had the most carbonos, the most action in the Beis Hamikdash? Was Arab Pesach. Everybody brought a carbon Pesach. That that day was was was. I mean, it was you know it was it was crazy what happened in the Beis Hamikdash that day. So, so the, the, the firstborn adopted a custom, we're going to fast on Erev Pesach because we lost the Evo. So that answers the first two questions. In other words, it's not a fast for being saved. It's a fast for losing a privilege, right, for mourning, and it's appropriate to fast for that. And then the actual day of the fast is Erev Pesach. Or the day of the fast isn't Pesach. We asked, you know, if it's, if it's Nidche, we should... Push it off the two days before. No, the actual day of the fast is the 14th of Nisan, Arab Pesach, because that's when you had all the carbonos. That's when you had all the carbonos. Okay. But here's the, here's the beautiful part. I mean, that's beautiful too. But 
Because it gets better. So he says, so what's the idea with the Sion? So he says, with the Ramam we just said, that the Ramam says that, yes, there's a tremendous advantage to being a king. It's a tremendous advantage to having the crown of Kahuna. He says, but you know what's greater than even that is the crown of Torah. So the idea is, you can either sit and mourn over the fact that you lost the crown of Kahuna, or you can be proactive and get an even better crown, which is the crown of Torah. So he says, it's only appropriate to mourn if you're not learning. But if you're learning, then why mourn over something that you lost when you have an opportunity to get something even greater, which is the crown of Torah? So it's a fast day. It's mourning over the idea that we lost the kahuna. But proactively we say, don't fast. Go make a siyam. Go be engaged in learning. And then you'll have an even greater crown, which is the crown of Torah, that'll supersede the crown of, of Kahuna. Is and that analogous to um, being able to eat meat during the nine days if you make a seal? Um, there's probably some connection, right? yeah. Um, that's a good point, that's a good point. There probably is something I can't, you know, probably has something to do with it. But, yeah. you know, I'll think about it. Somebody who, he was, uh, well, he was, he was traveling back to his family. Yeah, no, I think yeah, it makes perfect sense. Ha- and it happened to be uh, during and so uh, his kids asked him what are you going to do because the uh, airline meal will probably be meat. He said, it's okay. I'm taking the Gemara with me. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> now that I think about it, yeah, I think it's a perfect analogy because we're mourning the loss of the Vesa Mikdash and therefore we don't eat meat. But if you go ahead and make a seum, it's like, you know, you can either mourn the lost that or you, we have Torah. It's even greater than, than the basic English. Yeah. So again, that's this idea from the Gemara. The Gemara says, Yikar the Torah is greater than Lifnai V'lifnim. It's greater than the Kohen Gadol's service on Yom Kippur. Even greater than that is Talmud Chacham, somebody who learns. Okay. Okay. Um... So the end of that passage says, all of your desires will not equal it, will not add up to it, cannot compare to it. Um, I want to say over a, a Rambam, the Rambam at the beginning in his parish of Mishnahis, the Rambam is a parish on all of Mishnahis, in the beginning of the 10th parak of Sanhedrin, is a long introduction, the Rambam, it's, it's a lot of, Tremendous uh, nuggets in there. The name of the parak is Chelik. So the Kol Yisrael Yeshlam Chelik Olam The name of the parak. Every every Jew is a portion of the world to come. And the Rambam takes that opportunity to, you know, really talk at length about a lot of very important principles. The thirteen principles of faith in the Rambam come from there. Um, the famous thirteen principles of faith uh, they come from his, his commentary to this parak in Sanhedrin. It's a lot that he talks about. So there's a fascinating uh, little discussion that he has at the beginning there. He says the following. He says, if you go and ask people, what's the reward for studying Torah? So he says, one group of people will come and tell you the reward is, uh, the reward is you get reward in the, you know, the world to come. And others will tell you that uh, you get you know, rain in the proper time and, and uh, you know, children and, and blessings. And he quotes a passage in the Torah that says that. 
says, and others will tell you you'll merit to see the days of Mashiach coming, and, and others will tell you that you'll merit for Tchias HaMesim, and, and, you know. So he says, which is it? Which is it? It's also confusing. What is the reward of all these different things? Like, which, what is it? What is the reward? So the Ramam says something very interesting. He says, like, then he gives an analogy. He says, you have a kid who starts learning. Um, so the teacher comes over to him and says, you know, if you learn, I'll give you, give you a sweet, give you a treat, you know. So the, the reward that the kids get for the learning is, is the sweet, the treat. So as the kid gets older, so, you know, the, 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 the treat's no longer good enough. You offer him a coin, he says, he give him some money, you know. And then you get older, and that's not good enough, and then you do it for honor, and he goes on. So he says, if I ask you the same question, what's the reward for studying? Is it the treat? Is it the coin? Is it the honor? So he says, no. He says, the reward of studying is, is the study itself. It's being educated. Ultimately, the reward of study, the reason why you should study is because it's valuable to learn. Right? All of the other things which we call the reward are really incentives. Are incentives to get you to do it. But the ultimate reward of what it is that, that, that you're getting is the thing itself. See, he says the same thing is true with serving Hashem and Torah. And learning Torah. All the things that we mention as rewards, so to speak, you know, Olam Haba, and Mashiach, and, and Tchies HaMesim, and, and all these different things, and, and material blessings, and all, he says they're all incentives. He says, but you know what the reward of Torah is? The reward of Torah is Torah. Torah is Hashem. You know, it's its own reward. You don't need another reason to do it. Now, okay, they're helpful, and Hashem set up a system that way. So, when I look at this Pasuk, and it says that, that, nothing you can possibly want will equal the Torah. Anything a person could possibly want in this world, even the most noble things a person could possibly want in this world, will not equal the Torah. The ultimate prize is the Torah itself. We don't learn Torah in order to do, achieve something else. The ultimate reward is having the Torah itself, um, which, is, which is having Hashem. That's what, having closest connection to Hashem, that's what it is. You know, we talk about uh, learning Torah for the Shema for its own sake. That's what it means. A person who's connected to Torah is connected to Hashem. That's what it's, it's, it's synonymous with that. So anything you could possibly, to the depth of this puzzle, anything you could possibly want, we're not simply talking about, you know, coarse, you know, childish, immature wants. Even the most noble <laughs> desires of a person will never come close, will not equal the actual value of having the Torah itself. And that's, and that's uh, what this Pasuk is saying. Okay. Pasuk Tes Zayin. Orech yamim biminos bismola osher v'chavah. Someone, ostensibly someone who has Torah, who has Chachmah, will have long days in his right hand, and in his left hand will be wealth and honor. Okay, meaning after... I didn't say there is a reward. <laughs> I didn't say there is a reward. What we said was, is that the Torah is the ultimate reward. That said, that said, a person will also achieve other reward. 
Um, there's a Gemara in the Dharam. The Gemara in the Dharam says that a person shouldn't, shouldn't learn for the sake, it is, a person shouldn't learn, what's the, I'm trying to remember the exact, yeah, the exact question of the Gemara. The Gemara says a person shouldn't learn for the sake, um, you know, that they'll, they'll call me Rebbe, they'll, they'll, they'll give me accolades, they'll give me honor. It gives a couple of different, you know, other ulterior motives why a person would want to learn. But the person shouldn't do that. Rather, learn Torah for the sake of Hashem and the sofa called love. And in the end, the honor will come. Meaning, don't do it for the sake of the honor. If you do it for the right reasons, then the honor is going to come too. It'll, it'll follow you, but don't do it for that reason. Um, there's a famous line that the artist says, anybody who runs after honor, honor will run away from him. And anybody who's away from honor, honor will run after him. Right? So, I think exactly what this passage is expressing. The ultimate reward of learning Torah is the Torah itself, and nothing can compare it to it. That said, somebody who learns will end up with Orech Yamin Bimina, long life, long days in his right hand, and Osher V'chavah Bismola, and wealth and, and honor in his left hand, as a byproduct of learning, you'll get those things as well. Not that that's the reason why you're doing it. After first saying, nothing is more valuable than that, um, we then say, but a person will end up with this in his right hand, and this is left hand. Now, the right hand is always the more dominant one, um, which signifies more importance. So having longevity of life, long days, long life, is obviously more valuable, and secondary to that is Osher V'chavod, um, wealth and honor. Okay. Both of those things seem to, I mean, if you're doing it from the right motives and everything, if you get long life, you can study Torah for longer, you know, and if you have wealth and honor, then you don't need to put yourself so much into the world to, to, to work and stuff, and you can spend more time. Correct. Correct. They, they, definitely, they definitely help. And, and I think, so why is it important to say this? You know, one may think, well, it's counterintuitive. Then, if, if I don't want you to learn for the honor, so then why would I want to tell you that if you learn, you'll get the honor? Right? Isn't that kind, of, that kind of self-defeating? So I think there's another important point that has to be said here, which is that people pursue other things for the honor. Right? So you tell such a person, you're taking that path in life because you want wealth and honor. That's not even going to lead you there. And this will. So I'm not saying do it because of this. But if you're anyways pursuing wealth and honor... Well, just know that this is the path that's going to get you there, not that one. Um, that, that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's the idea. Okay. And we see so many people learning in absolute poverty. So then the, the question becomes, what does wealth mean? And, and, that's, and the, what, is, what does wealth mean? Um, it, even in a literal sense, Rav Dessler makes this point, and, and Rav Dessler says this, again, as only Rav Dessler can, he says, if you define poverty as a feeling of lacking something that you feel that you need, the wealthier are a lot poorer than the, than, than the impoverished. He says, wealthy people have a lot more things that they don't have that they feel that they want or need <laughs> relative to people that are poor. So he says, if poverty is I don't have something. 
the feeling is because because I mean it's all relative. I mean even the poorest people of today, relative to people who lived two hundred years ago, as far as amenities are concerned, were marvelously wealthy. So why are we calling them poor, right? So we we're talking about a mindset. We're talking about people's sense of possession. In other words, if we're objectively defining, it's all relative. In other words, even the poverty level is relative to other people's poverty level, right? So to say that somebody's objectively poor, I mean, if you have running water and you've got a flat screen TV and an iPhone, you know, and access to Wi-Fi and you're not actually starving to death, so then, no, you're not poor relative to most of human history. You're actually quite rich, right? So what do we mean when we say poverty? We're talking about state of mind, right? And what defines that state of mind? Well, look at all the things that I don't have, right? Well, the wealthier one gets, the more that impoverished state of mind actually takes hold of them. Mm. The poor people look at the people wealthier than them and say, you're wealthy, I'm poor. The wealthy do that even more. They look at the people wealthier than them and say, you're wealthy, I'm poor, right? It's a relative thing. That's what says this. He says, psychologically, wealthy people are poorer than poor people. Okay, but what I'm thinking of is uh, all the letters I get in the mail when I've got a big stomach of starving, they don't have bread to put on the table, etc. Yeah, Uh, well, that's true. Uh, You know, some of. that that's true. I, I, I hate some of it's probably hyperbole. Some of it, not all of it, but some of it, some of it's probably hyperbole. But um, it, it, it's a good question. It's a good question. I, I have some thoughts on it, but I'll, I'll, I'll reserve them for a different time. Okay. Um, the Vilna God says something else over here. On this idea of Osher, Orach Yom Bimina V'Smol Osher V'Chavot, that he says the the right hand is referring to somebody who learns for the sake of heaven, Lishma, for, alter, for not for ulterior motives. That's the person who merits long life. The left side, the wealth and the honor, is is, is for people who do it with ulterior motives. That that's how the film can understand this pasuk. Okay, uh, let's just get to the next pasuk here because I wanted to get to it. The next two pasukim are actually very well known pasukim. And then the next one, it's Chaim Yom Achazikim, in very famous Pesukim. Um, let's let's uh, just briefly do Yudzayin. It's already 8.45. Let's do Yudzayin, and then we'll, we'll stop there, and then we'll come back with next week with Eitz Chaim Yom. It's ways are pleasant ways, and all of its paths are peaceful. Um, I guess the best way to describe this Pesuk is to first say what it doesn't mean. And it's commonly misunderstood, this Pasuk, or, or misused, I would say, abused. This Pasuk is one of the more abused Pasukim out there. Some people take this Pasuk to mean that if I don't think something is pleasant, or if I don't think something is peaceful, then it's not what the Torah wants from me. Like, they start with the, the Noam part, based on their own definition of Noam. This is what I think is pleasant. This is what I think is peaceful. And then use that to judge the Torah and say, okay, well, then this mitzvah, yeah, this mitzvah, not. I like this part of the Torah. I don't like that part of the Torah. That's a t- 
terrible abuse of this pasuk. What the pasuk is saying is that if one follows the Torah as is, it will lead to only pleasantness and peace and, and everything good. Meaning there is nothing in the Torah, whether you understand how it leads to pleasantness and peace or not, there is nothing in the Torah that doesn't ultimately lead to a more pleasant and peaceful world. People misconstrue that and they say, oh, well, see, the Torah is meant to be pleasant. Therefore, you know, the Torah can't really want me to do X, Y, or Z. You know, the Torah can't, can't be demanding this. You know. No, that's, that's not at all what this blessing is saying. What it's saying is if you follow the Torah uh, the way it's written, which sometimes doesn't seem very peaceful or pleasant, it will ultimately lead to a more peaceful and pleasant world. The, the world the Torah envisions is a peaceful and pleasant one. Sometimes you have to do things which don't seem to be very peaceful and pleasant to get there. But the Torah is not leading us towards a world that's anything other than peaceful and pleasant. And this is the world the Torah is leading to and envisioning. That doesn't mean that if you find something which seems to be you know, cruel or, 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 or not so pleasant, that that can't be part of the Torah. But that's not what that means. Um, what it does mean, though, is that everything in the Torah does lead towards a peaceful and pleasant life. Uh, which is the goal. Uh, you know, and, and the truth is, even if this weren't the case, we still have to do it. Right? Hashem created the world and He gives us a job and even if the job didn't end up peaceful and pleasant, we still have to do it. But it's a tremendous chesed from Hashem that He gave us a Torah which also is a, a peaceful and pleasant path uh, for us to follow. Okay?